struts like John Wayne, resembles Jim Carrey, and dresses like he's visually impaired. Because he is. Insight. Insight. With Mark Farrell on the Progressive Radio Network. 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 How did it become June 12th already? My God. Time flies. Yes, it's been a hot one so far. Hey, it's Mark Farrell. The show is Insight on the Progressive Radio Network. Yeah, New York is a little bit cooler today. The last week or so, man, has been stifling. Man, the concrete is just pulsating heat. Unbelievable. But thankfully, in the last couple days, each day we've had a knockout shower, usually like between 3 and 6 p.m. So it's cooled it a little bit in the past few days, but last night the temperature dropped. So we are in the 80s today. Yes. And what a show we have. We're going to meet Moya Bailey. Moya has written an outstanding new book called Massage Noir Transformed, Black Women's Digital Resistance. She explores how courageous black women, all kinds, straight, lesbian, queer, trans, you name it, are speaking out against anti-black misogyny that is so prevalent on the Internet uh, through the creation of like new content and digital practices. A great conversation I had with her the other day. And we'll get into that. We'll be talking about the Keystone Project. Uh, we'll talk about the very, very sad story of the six-year-old that was killed due to road rage. Man, just breaks my heart. And what about COVID? The weight gain aspect. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, raise your hand. Yeah, that would be me. We're going to address that in terms of what's the best way to attack weight loss and the long-term success rate of what route you choose. I'm also going to be talking about something that I just discovered the other day uh, that my daughter's school was having. And um, I'd like to talk about autonomy and independence, how it's really benefited most kids during remote learning. So uh, interesting show. I hope your June is off to a good start. Again, yes, it's been a hot one, but it's also been a very, very freeing one. Don't you feel that way? I mean, Obviously, this show, the station airs globally, but where you are, have the restrictions eased a great deal? Are you comfortable going into stores maskless or do you mask up? Doctor's office, schools, um, going for gas, you name it. So I've seen all kinds of reactions, but for the most part, I would say, I don't know, given any... Example of going into a food store, maybe 20, 30 percent ish are wearing masks. And that's cool. I totally respect everyone's right uh, choice to mask up, not mask, um, to drink heavily. Uh, Oh, how did that come into the conversation already, Mark? I, I don't know, Mark. Because it's too early to talk about alcohol. But is it really too early to talk about alcohol? <laughs> Sorry. Went off on a tangent there. Um, just kidding. But um, yeah, it's great. It's great to see just people living. And that's very, very cool. You know, as a soccer coach of my daughter's team, a bunch of uh, eight-year-olds, it's nice to see, more importantly, as a coach, to not have to wear a mask because trying to give instruction and orders and even accolades and just feedback from the sideline wearing a mask is difficult. Did I do it? Of course. I had, let me see, seven, six or seven games where we uh, did such that. And uh, it worked out fine. 
And the important thing is that the kids are just out there having fun. So um, interesting to see what it's like in your neck of the woods. But anyway, I hope you're comfortable wherever you live and that you're healthy. That's first and foremost. And that that the wake of the pandemic is just the wake where, you know, we're dealing with a lot of different aspects of it. Of course, the mental health component is vital. It's big. And I think it's going to be something that we deal with as a society for some time in the future. But I beg you to um, to address this. I was reading an article the other day that said about roughly 20 percent of people that have COVID had COVID, H.A.D., experience depression, like a serious onset of depression. 20%, that's a big number. And a friend of mine who I reconnected with from high school about two years ago at a reunion, he was there, great guy. And he was telling me about some concept he has in mind for a TV pilot. And it's really been nice. We reunited and he has me part of this TV pilot concept that uh, it's been shot, it's in post-production. And it's a great concept. It's a really good concept. Now I'm sort of the host producer in the TV pilot. And it's got some legs. So um, I'll keep you posted on that. Of course, I can't share the, the actual creative concept of it. Uh, it's copyrighted and all that. But you know how that is. People just steal stuff nowadays and you end up in court and nothing gets done. That's the American way, right? <laughs> um, but anyway, he confided in me the other day and said, Mark, I am just so depressed he has lost over 40 pounds. And this guy is big. He's 6'4". Did he have 40 pounds to lose? Uh, you know, not really. I think he was 220s, in the 220s. And he lost 40 pounds. And of course, the weight is just a byproduct of what he's feeling and experiencing. Thankfully, he got help. He's on medication, which is helping him get through every day so he can continue to work, um, do all the things that we all need to do each and every day. But it got me to think about all the other people. You know, actually, there's four people right now that I'm calling multiple times during the week that are in my life that I'm helping give confidence, lend an ear, and just be a sounding board for people who are going through major depression right now and anxiety. It's no joke, man. It's not an easy path to walk. And I just keep reassuring each one of these people that you will get through this. I promise you, you will get through this. Just keep putting in the work and patience and the ability to not be too hard on yourself. We all think, okay, what did I do to deserve this? You didn't do anything to deserve depression. Most likely, it's just in your DNA. Or, you know what? It's just an onset that happened. Or it's a byproduct of COVID. But that's the reality. And through being cognizant of how you're feeling, sharing it with a physician, and whether you go on medication or not, with, uh, but I, I stress Exercise. Movement is medicine. You have to burn off, even if you have zero energy to pick up your little pinky. You have to move your body. Get the blood flow. Any dopamine is going to help. So I know it's very hard. And my heart breaks for each one of these people. But they're getting through it. And I can hear it in their voice. 
And that's powerful for me because I'm like, listen, I've been down this road and I share stories about my worst days that were, you know, years back, thankfully now, thankfully now. Um, but nonetheless, they still apply. And what worked for me may work for them, may work for you. But anyway, um, I just want you to be cognizant if you did have COVID-19 that this is a possibility. Hopefully not. But if you know somebody, um, just be supportive and do whatever you can to help them. Of course, in respect to privacy, I, d- I don't share any of this information. And a lot of these people know each other, but I'm a vault. Won't say anything because that's not the point. The point is to help them. If they want to share it publicly, that's their choice. So the Keystone Pipeline, no more, baby. That has been in the works for what, like 10 years? Wow. So they pulled the plug on it, um, on the project, I think it was yesterday, months after the permit was revoked by Biden. I think Biden got into office. I think the first day he said, no, man, not on my watch. You're not going to put a pipeline from where? Um, Alberta, Canada. That's where it's from. All the way to Nebraska. So it was going to be like, what's that, like 12,000, no, 1,200 miles. Um, environmentalists and Native American groups had fought against the project for over 10 years. That's just fantastic. Now, I don't know a great deal about this, but I am on the side of the environmentalists. And, of course, the Native American groups, who I'm sure's property was going to be impacted by this. Um, a fossil fuel? Do we really need to make 1,200 miles for a fossil fuel? Oh, all these jobs will be made. These are construction jobs. These are temporary jobs. I think they said something like 10,000 jobs will be made, and that's temporary. And I think when it's all said and done, there would have been 50, five, zero permanent jobs. So who is this benefiting, or who would it have benefited I think Trump uh, revived the pipeline in 2017 uh, after Obama had sidetracked it. Um, The Calgary-based TC Energy Company said it would work with regional regulators to dismantle (laughs) their equipment and ensure a safe termination of exit areas where construction had been planned. So translation, hopefully they're going to clean up their mess. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I think it was the first day of office that Biden had canceled that uh, permit. Um, now, there's a lot of backlash. Uh, Biden's decision uh, have lawmakers, including his own party, some of them said the project would have created energy sector and construction jobs for American workers. But everything I have read said it was temporary. Again, case in point, a lot of construction jobs to begin with, but when it's all said and done, five zero fifty 50 jobs, permanent jobs. So yesterday, some Republican senators introduced legislation that would force Biden administration to account for the number of jobs lost due to the project's, due to the project's cancellation. Um, you know, I, I don't know what to say. Republicans just waste so much time, and I know the Democrats do as well, you know, pick and choose, but on this thing, just, you know, just walk away from your losses. And speaking of losses, man, this just this just breaks my heart. You heard about the mother who was driving on a highway, or they call it a freeway in California. What was it, two weeks ago or so? Almost two weeks ago, where there was a road rage incident and her son, Aiden Leos, a six-year-old, 
who was being driven to kindergarten, was shot and killed. It doesn't get worse than this. I mean, that is just beyond sad and deplorable and sickening and outrageous. Joanna Clunan was the mother, and she heard her six-year-old son say, Mommy, my tummy hurts. That's because a bullet had been pierced through the back of the car, went through his booster seat, and right through the back of him into his stomach. So this happened in Orange County. Of course, the persons who shot Aiden fled the scene, but finally two arrests have been made uh, in Aiden's death. His name is Marcus Anthony Erez, 24, and Wayne Lee, 23. And they're expected to be charged with murder. They probably were. Um, expected to be held on one million bail each. Everybody this. And the apparent road, road raid incident stemmed from a perceived unsafe lane, lane change. And I think uh, the finger was given. I think probably the mother. I think I read that last week. The mother gave the uh, Marcus, Anthony, and Wayne uh, the finger. And so her son died because of that. Uh, I mean, how does life go on for her? I mean, we've all been in road rage situations. I can't say road rage where we've maybe flipped somebody off. I don't do it. I have done it, but not in a long, long time. I'll get, I, what I'm famous for, like when somebody does something stupid and if I can, I, you know, I grab the steering wheel with my leg and I just put both hands up like, what, what, are you kidding me? That's what I'm famous for. Never give the finger. Especially as a parent, I can't do that. I can't do that because there are kids in a car. And it's just unsafe, man. There are just too many screwballs out there in the world. And now more than ever, because people are just not themselves. After COVID, during COVID, the lockdown, people were wackadoodle before and now. They're just off the charts, friggin' crazy. So, man, just if, if that's something you've done, please just don't do it. Just, it's not worth it. I believe me. I know you get mad. I get mad. You get frustrated. They do something wrong. They drive like a jackass. Whether you do something wrong, just admit it. Be like, give a wave. Every time I do something wrong, I just like give a wave. Like uh, in the rearview mirror or stick out my hand or somebody lets me in. Just be like, hey, any acknowledgement, even if it's my bad. It's like, hey, cool. I take the blame. I take the onus. But, man, now she has to live with the loss of her son because of what she did. And, of course, what parent would think that flipping somebody off would get their child killed? But you have to think that way. Right? Because of what I just covered. People are just nuts, man. And now these two people, essentially kids, a 24 and a 23-year-old, will be behind bars for, what, 10, 15, 20 years? Because of they couldn't handle being told to F off. And the end result was a bullet lodged in a six-year-old stomach that took his life. All right. Moving forward. Moya Bailey. We're going to meet her in just a few minutes. Her book, Massage Noir, Transformed Black Lives Digital Resistance, is great. 
You're going to love our conversation. She's a professor. She's a great person. But before we get to that, I want to talk about something really, really, I don't know. As a parent, I'm very proud. But my daughter takes a lot of initiative, um, and she gets it from, I don't know, maybe she ordered it on Amazon. (laughs) Well, her her parents are family-driven, fairly driven, I should say. Um, But she just took on this initiative at school all on her own. She's like, you know what, I see garbage around the school grounds, and I don't like it. So basically, she approached her teacher and said, hey, I would like to make a recycling project. And the teacher's like, oh, great. Let me know, you know, write something up. And she, not only did she write something up, she composed this whole big thing, presented a document, a PowerPoint to the teacher. And the teacher's like, whoa, okay, well, this is great. And next thing you know, I guess the teacher notified the principal. And the principal says, I want to meet with you. And my daughter comes home and tells us, we're like, oh, this is fantastic. The principal is just knocked over with my daughter's plan, uh, conception, execution. So she did the PowerPoint. She did a flyer. And so this whole thing now is taking on a life of its own where the whole school is partaking in the recycling project this week. Every student in every class received this. And guess who executed the whole project? Not the principal, not the teachers, my daughter. And they just prompted her and promoted her and, you know, steered her through it. But she took care of everything, all the conceptuals, all the printing, everything. Actually, the the teacher actually printed the flyer, but she designed everything, laid it all out, everything. Unbelievable. I'm just over the moon with her not only recognizing the fact that there's litter, as far as I'm concerned, in many places on this globe, in our neck of the woods as well, in New Jersey, and that she wanted to do something about it. And that and not only did she want to do something about it, she took responsibility. That's the thing about community is taking responsibility. It's not just, you know, saying, well, I wish this could be done or this needs to stop and that should be executed. But actually taking the reins and saying, you know what? Well, I'm going to lead this initiative. I will be the trailblazer on this project and it'll get done. Yes, we're going to need the help of many other people, but I'm going to be the leader to say enough is enough and let's make a change. And that's what change is all about. And so this morning, a couple hours ago, actually, uh, when I was on the bus stop with my daughter, I said, you know, can I, can I talk about what you're doing today on my show? She's like, yeah, I guess so. I'm like, you know what? Ho- hold on a second. I whipped out my iPhone. I'm like, hey, let me ask you a few questions. And this is the result of that. So what initially gave you the idea to create a recycling project for your students? Well, at my school, I saw a bunch of bags on trees, and I thought there was pollution in the air, so I wanted to get rid of it. And what about the feedback? It seems like the teachers, the principal, and the students are really happy about what you've created. Yes, I'm so happy that the using trash to create something beautiful and something that they can actually use. And that's only one component. You actually had to devise a video, a flyer, and multiple aspects of it to make it enticing and to attract your students. How did that come to you? Well, I just thought I have to advertise and because I didn't think a kid would want to do a challenge where I had to pick a bunch of things up for nothing. So I had to make a prize And that actually requires me to recycle. And what about the environment? How important is this to you? This is very important because 
Um, I have a creek in my backyard, and it's just so sad seeing all the trash on trees, and nobody picks it up because they think it's gross. On behalf of the entire country, thank you for keeping this part of the world beautiful. Thank you. So that, that was us just talking on the bus stop a couple hours ago. How cool is that? you got to love technology. That's just a great example of how our youth are so, so vital of change and different perspective and how we have to harness and really promote their energy and their willingness to be to exercise their fresh ideas, to make change. I mean, it's all so doable, right? <laughs> it makes sense. But so harness that in your child, your grandchild, your neighbor's kid. But, you know, it takes a village. And speaking of taking a village, let's meet Moya Bailey. Her book, Misogynoir Transformed, it's just incredible. And I recorded this interview with Moya last week, and I think you're really going to enjoy it. Moya Bailey, excellent to meet you and have you on the show. It's a real pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for putting something in the ether that is so, so paramount and the timing equally paramount. And I want to start off with reading a quote that I think really resonates, uh, will resonate with a lot of listeners. And it's from Janet Mock. She's a New York Times bestselling author of Redefining Realness and Surpassing Certainty. The quote is a resounding, deftly reported manifesto centering the work of transformative black women seeking one another in a culture that refuses to see us and center us. Moya Bailey reminds us that we are our liberators and we have always had the tools to seek, see, and celebrate ourselves. Amen, right? Yes, yes. Love, Janet. And that's such a beautiful blurb. Did you purposely, consciously set out to uh, come up with the term, and I don't want to botch this, <laughs> massage a noir, uh, back in oh, 2008? Yes. I was trying to find a way to describe what I saw as anti-Black racist misogyny that Black women were experiencing. And at the time when working on my dissertation, I was looking at medical school textbooks and yearbooks from the 1910s, which wow. is, you know, sort of a random time to be studying. But uh, I saw these representations of Black women in this seemingly strange place, but the representations and narratives I was looking at were very similar to what was happening in popular culture contemporarily. So I was trying to understand how things hadn't really changed in the interceding 100 years. What was it about Black women's representation that held steady in these negative caricatures? And that's how I came to Noir, really trying to speak to that uh, durability of this negative representation. And I imagine, cumulatively speaking, seeing all the things that were and weren't online simultaneously, representative Absolutely. of Black women. Yes. So uh, the shift, of course, is that the book covers what's happening online in this contemporary moment and how Black women are responding to that. So the representations that before were in these early forms of social media like yearbooks now finds a place in uh, Facebook, which you know grew out of our understanding of yearbooks. That's where the name comes from. 
uh, but then we see similar negative portrayals on Twitter, Tumblr, and you know, pick your latest platform, you're gonna see some misogynoir on there. And this is on point, but a little bit off point here, Moya. I am semi-active on social media. I only use Facebook because I have a permanent visual impairment. So it's an easy platform for me to negotiate. And I rarely, rarely am offered friend requests by African-American black men or women. And I, and I say to myself, this is not an accident. It absolutely is not. I mean, one of the things that this book just touches on briefly is how algorithms definitely dictate who we have access to. So not even the friend request you're getting, but also the kind of ads that you see mm, that curate your Facebook experience versus mine. I'm sure that if we looked at our ad content, we'd see very different uh, promotions. And so the way that these platforms are designed definitely reinforce some of these stereotypes and reinforce some of the segregation that we experience in our own society. I imagine it doesn't take much for you to feel emboldened because obviously with all your accolades and successes um, and your uh, vast professional resume that you have the confidence, you have the know-how to be that lightning rod. And that must feel very, very empowering and also maybe a little daunting as well because the era that we're living in uh, I need you plus, you know, telling million other women like you uh, and, and regardless of skin color, we need to learn to stand up to vocalize and not accept the status quo. We need to move way, way ahead um, and, and look back and with disgust and just learn from this moment. Absolutely. And I think what we can see contemporarily as well is that no matter how much social standing a Black woman has, misogynoir is ready to rear its ugly head. So I'm thinking particularly about Meghan Markle and her mental health concerns that came up uh, as she was dealing with how the British press and then the royal family was treating her uh, as a Black woman trying to navigate that particular space. And then even yesterday, we have Naomi Osaka, who is dealing with trying to negotiate, you know, how do I deal with the press that is constantly, you know, disparaging me, disparaging my body as a professional tennis player, and then ultimately making the decision just to bow out completely of the French Open. So misogynoir is, it, it really does not discriminate when it comes to Black no, women. I no. think that Black women with privilege definitely get some relief, but that relief is definitely relative given their um, high profile. So they also get more in terms of volume sometimes because they are so visible. And that's a valid point you brought up that she did bow out. And it's a shame on multiple levels because number one, that I was telling my kids how difficult it is to be a professional athlete of any platform and having to go into your room, especially when it's a, a singular solo sport like tennis and have to be pummeled with questions. And I understand, hey, you're in a spotlight, maybe that's part of your job, et cetera. But when someone comes out and says, listen, I'm having mental health issues. I'm not good at this on a good day. So can we just, you know, let me bypass this? Not only was she fine, they put out a public statement basically lambasting her. And, and that culture is just, 
unacceptable. Absolutely. And of course, we're seeing this happening to Naomi, but of course there was mm-hmm. Serena before her, Venus yep. before her, and we saw that start when they were very little. So um, there's, you know, all of this footage of when they were just coming up when they were still young girls dealing with press that asked them a barrage of questions that they didn't ask, you know, some of their other uh, competitors. So there's definitely a way that Black women are adultified, this sense that uh, Black women are expected to be older than they are when they were young. And then also a sense that um, Black women are tough and can take it. So the sense that we can ask them anything, we can treat Black women in any kind of way because they're resilient and they'll be able to bounce back. But it doesn't actually take um, Black women's humanity into account when that is how people are interacting with them. Along with the invasive nature. Absolutely, exactly. And so part of the thing that I argue in the book is that one way that Black women combat that invasive nature is to create their own little maroon sites of respite on the internet. So whether it's through a particular hashtag or through a web show or through the content they create on a Tumblr site, Black women are carving out their own little spaces where misogynoir can't really reach them and where they can enjoy uh, the things that they enjoy without having to deal with constantly battling this negative portrayal that follows them in the media. Could that also be considered devil's advocate here as a, uh, a way of hiding though? I mean, I think people do see it that way, but you know, these are small little corners of the internet that people sort of jump to when mm. they can. Uh, and they're definitely not uh, where people can hide for very long, right? So I, I think of it as, again, something that is temporary, uh, a little moment of reprise in an otherwise overwhelming sea of yes. misogynoir. True, true. I, for myself, um, cannot speak on what it's like to be Black. Uh, I married a Indian woman. I can't speak on what it's like to be Indian in America. Um, I only can speak on what it's like to be a person with a visual impairment, a disability, a person with mental health issues myself. And I feel because I've chosen this platform and I'm a speaker when I'm not on the radio to wave that flag because the sea of change has to come with people speaking out, uh, whether it's they feel like they're violated, uh, whether they just can't stand it on whatever uh, level, uh, but the sea has to change and, and having voices being heard, especially a male voice. I I believe it's my job and my duty to say, yes, I'm a man. It doesn't make me weak to have uh, depression, anxiety, et cetera. And I'm vulnerable just like anybody else. And here's how I cope. And here are my toolboxes uh, and with my uh, devices to stay strong and keep my composure when I need to. That's not easy when it's your skin color and it's not something you can hide from and it's something that's so prevalent in this society worldwide. Yes. One of the things that I talk about in this book and in my previous book that I co-authored with Sarah J. Jackson and Brooke Foucault-Wells, hashtag activism, we talk about what it means to be an ally or an accomplice and how that is a really important role for people to play 
when it is connected to following and listening to uh, the people who are most affected by whatever type of oppression we're talking about or looking at. So definitely seeing the connections across disability, across uh, mental health concerns, across uh, the way that racism, sexism, transphobia, homophobia all come into play, it, it becomes important to center the people who are experiencing the harm and make sure that our allyship and accompliceship uh, really follows, follows their lead. Another valid point, Moya, is the LGBTQ community, uh, a Black woman. So is that multiply compounded? Absolutely. So one of the things that I talk about in the book is that um, people tend to think of Black women as a category of cis and heterosexual women. But of course, there are always Black women who are trans, Black women who are not heterosexual. So part of the book is trying to expand our thinking so that when you hear the term Black women, you don't assume that we're talking about uh, straight women first or cis Black women first, that you expand and start to think about how queer Black women, how trans Black women, how non-binary, agender, gender variant folks are having to navigate their world and still experiencing misogynoir because it's it's not just uh, misogynoir really impacts people who are read as Black women, whether they identify that way or not. And definitely for people who are non-binary, agender, or otherwise gender variant, the way that misogynoir manifests some ways is by their being misgendered in the first place. Moya Bailey, are there numbers available, and this is a sad uh, case when I think about this, for Black women who are LGBTQ or questioning who remain more silent than Caucasian or other races because of the just everyday struggle being a Black woman and they can't even wrap their head around, wow, I'm not going to come out of the closet because I can't even deal with my skin color. Yeah, I mean, I think there's definitely the case of we're entering Pride Month. So mm-hmm. like, there yes. are definitely some ways that people have been talking about the silence and the way that multiple oppressions definitely impact people's ability to come out and be vocal about who they are. There's also the case that when um, some violence has occurred, it isn't always the case that we accurately represent who that violence happened to. So there've been numerous cases within the trans community where trans women have been murdered or otherwise attacked or hurt, but uh, the press or the people reporting don't use their, their names that they have chosen for themselves. They use the names that they were ha- perhaps born with, and then it obscures the fact that they're trans at all and doesn't actually honor their pronouns or their um, transition. So there's definitely uh, a way that this happens in both ways. One where uh, people perhaps feel afraid and reluctant to share who they are, but then also a misgendering that happens um, after harm has occurred. So we haven't done enough to really disaggregate data too to talk about the numbers of non-binary queer members of the LGBTQ community, sometimes referred to jokingly as the alphabet mafia, which I'm, (laughs) I'm a fan, I'm a fan of that particular phrasing myself, Uh, but (laughs) yeah, so people who um, are, 
are in this community not finding themselves, um, not finding their stories being yeah. told because they've been erased by the way that they have been represented um, post-harm or post-incident. You touched on media right there. And my question, I want your response, if you can, Moya Bailey, is to focus on mainstream media because obviously the far left and far right, uh, it's just too complicated in terms of an answer. Does the media do a disservice and or lack of not knowing their audience well enough to accurately portray them in terms of like what you had mentioned, like the accurate pronouns? Um, do you think they do their audience a disservice and not the readership or viewership by using their proper vernacular by educating and enlightening listeners and viewers? Yes, uh, there's a wonderful film uh, documentary on Netflix called Disclosure that's looking at uh, trans representation in mainstream Hollywood and television over the past century. And what that work really shows is that there have been some dominant tropes about trans people that have shaped how they've been viewed in mainstream media, but we're slowly starting to get things to change once we have actual trans people, LGBTQ people behind the camera as well as in front of it. So I think of a show like Pose, uh, written, directed, um, executive produced by Janet Mock on some episodes that has a really wonderful repre representation and reputation mm. because of uh, having people who have that experience at the helm and creating the show and giving it a level of authenticity that's sometimes missing when mainstream writers are trying to interpret an experience that they don't understand and don't share. So I think just in the last five years, we've seen a real boon in uh, how we can imagine LGBTQ representation on screen. And though, uh, one of the things that my work cautions and uh, another fabulous text called Trapdoor um, cautions is that just because we have visibility, it doesn't mean that we're automatically safer. That sometimes that visibility cuts both ways because there's inevitably a backlash so as trans representation uh, improves, as Black women also are achieving in very high and visible public ways, then of course that triggers some backlash and some resentment on the part of people who don't like to see those particular groups succeeding. And I imagine um, if I could read the bubble over your head, you're much happier of the position of uh, the United States currently versus a year ago because of mindsets of Trump and his followers. Yes, uh, and also just to think that, you know, things have shifted uh, in just that short bit of time, but I do think we have a lot of work to do yes, to undo um, a lot of these challenges. And, and it's interesting to think about, you know, the new administration uh, doing a little, but also not enough. You know, we, <laughs> I think a lot of people were voting with a sense of like, oh, not another four years of that, but um, just kind of holding steady and maybe not moving forward as much. 
a reprieve nonetheless, but mm -hmm. again, not quite what people were hoping for, I don't imagine. So you're talking about uh, social justice, um, racism, et cetera. Um, is there anything, and I don't want to get too far off base from your book, but is there anything that you would uh, love to see and um, people in your community um, and, and creating digital alchemy, one of your terms, um, to make this something that they could be executed quicker? Yes, I so appreciate that question, Mark. So one of the things that I am really interested in is transformative justice, which is why the book is called Misogynoir Transformed. And transformative justice is really asking us to imagine a new way of relating to each other, one that isn't based on uh, punishment and uh, the kind of negative incentives that don't actually work too well in getting people to change behavior. So transformative justice is really calling on us to imagine new ways of dealing with harm, new ways of uh, connecting to our neighbors, moving in a different way in relationship to police and government. So I am all for us doing the, the work of everyday abolition, uh, doing the work of trying to create and connect the communities that we really actually wanna be a part of. So one little instance of everyday abolition that I really love is doing the work of getting to know your neighbors. So trying to break down some of those silos that get built in a world that definitely has us thinking about our own individual nuclear families mm -hmm. uh, and trying to, to move against that. I do think that if we had more opportunities to connect with one another, we could actually do some of the work necessary to break down um, some of these longstanding uh, really problematic sure. absolutely absolutely those seem attainable um and, and i believe it's it's so emblematic of where you come from um and i don't think that's the has to be the situation i was fortunate enough to be raised in a liberal family uh went to school with probably 30 percent white african-american everyone else um so when i went to college and went to school with a lot of black kids it was normal to me. Um, and I think people just need to get over the fact that that is not normal, that they don't go to school or work with a lot of people uh, with a diverse culture and that people are people, you know, get past love is love, you know, get past the skin color and look what hate does to the nation and the world. I mean, have we learned mm -hmm. nothing, not a thing since the pandemic, you know, yeah. look at Israel, look at different parts of the world. We've learned not a single thing. Yeah, it's it's really unfortunate how history repeats itself. I am thinking of the work of Octavia Butler, um, Black feminist sci-fi writer whose work always asks us to question, you know, are humans going to make it? <laughs> Do humans really deserve to make it if they're yes. not willing to learn from yeah, yeah. each other? And, and that is that is my question. Can we create the world that we want? Uh, and can we do that in collaboration with each other, even if people don't look like us, don't talk like us, et cetera? Can this be executed digitally online to in, in small palatable doses for people to see the change is possible? Yeah, I mean, I think that the digital is, is a gift and a curse. You know, I think mm. of it as a tool that works 
depending on who's wielding it, you know, that uh, the, the digital can be used for good or for ill. So I am always impressed, and this book is a little bit of a love letter to what the internet and the digital has made possible and that has shaped and, and excited me. But the question then of course becomes, well, what is it shaping uh, on the negative side? What is it shaping that we don't actually want to perpetuate and to see grow? Uh, but I do think that there's a small pocket of people in every era who are committed to change and are doing the work. So in that sense, I am not, I am not um, unoptimistic mm. about uh, the world that is possible for us. And that's a natural segue from the next question, Moya Bailey. So where you are now versus five years ago and 10 years ago, you feel there's much more optimism with yourself. Uh, what about within the black community for women it's, itself? I mean, um, professional women, obviously, if they're driven, which they are because they're in the professional world, um, they want to succeed and they have to work X amount of times harder being a woman, being a black woman. Um, and then obviously in the times that we're in now where companies are leaner because of the COVID world that we live in, um, how optimistic are you that black women haven't had to take a step back before taking two forward? Mm, I mean, I think it's one, I think this time actually challenges us to think non-linearly because there's been a lot of opportunities that have been presented, even as there are issues and things that have been challenging. So I'm thinking about the leadership of Black Lives Matter and different organizations and that have really centered Black queer women's leadership specifically, and that that has been instrumental in getting a lot of our organizing off the ground and sustaining it over the past few years. At the same time that there have been setbacks and you know we can think of some of the violence that is still ongoing and um, the extrajudicial killings that are affecting both uh, black men and black women um, and black children. So I do think that if we take it on the whole, it's hard to see um, whether we are collectively moving forward or moving backward. But I do think that we are in a position where people are more aware of the issues and that we're having different conversations on television, mainstream television and mainstream media than we were having even a few years ago. The language of abolition, defund the police, etc. All of that being available to people in popular culture is relatively new. Mm. And I do really credit that to some of the digital organizing that organizations and people uh, moving in the spirit of Black Lives Matter have been able to create and push. Uh, two responses there, Moya Bailey. Number one is that the uh, mayoral uh, race has a um, debate tonight. So it's New York City, rather. Um, so that should be very interesting to find out what their stance is, because obviously it's a very heated topic there and on uh, you know the landscape across the country. And number two, generationally speaking, do you feel that obviously uh, the younger generations, people 30 and under, are more accepting, more open, uh, certainly with digital technology being part and parcel with their life, that this is a good vehicle um, 
to create change and open eyes. Yes, I'm so impressed by what young people are creating and how they're using these platforms. You know, TikTok is something that seems like simply a place for dance moves or uh, fun behavior. little video. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. But then there are ways that these young people are turning it into social justice commentary. And I'm just really impressed by how young people are able to take whatever they're given and use it to their own benefit. As a professor, you obviously are imparting knowledge, history, um, possibly expectations. Do you see the students in a vast manner being open to this change, being um, more like, okay, this could be step one. Uh, what is their feedback and how do you gauge them? Yeah, so I'm very fortunate because I teach mostly women's studies courses, African-American studies courses. So it's a self-selecting group. Sure. <laughs> so these are students that are already trying to think through how these issues Understood. are impacting their world. But I can say that they are very energized and trying to figure out how to bring more of their classmates along and how to make what they're learning in the classroom accessible to their parents and family and friends back home. And that is such a wonderful um, and, I don't know, enriching and heartening, heartening experience for me as an educator to see these students wanting to take the information that they're learning and take it and make it applicable to people who are outside of the classroom, outside of the ivory tower. So I always feel energized after I leave the classroom. Certainly, and that's apparent, and that's a great thing because we have to be fueled to be able to carry through our missions, correct? Absolutely, absolutely. So what is your message, your takeaway for a black woman listening to this, who's 50, who's 30, who's 15, um, what their role can be in social justice and creating change? Yes, black women. That your, yes, your survival and your thriving is so important for the work that uh, we want to see happen in the world. I think that a lot of black women do work on behalf of others and try to extend and support their community and not see themselves as part of it. So part of what I argue in the book is that taking care of yourself, the digital media that you create, the content that you produce, what you take in, that's also part of what makes this world a little bit of a better place for you as well. So uh, self-care is community care. Uh, as Tony Cade Bambera says, uh, the revolution begins with the self in the self. So I encourage all of the Black women listening to center themselves for once and, and do the things that they do to support others for themselves. I really like that phrase, self-care is community care. Thank you. Thank you. I think that, that applies to so many people. Absolutely. And so many aspects of who we are uh, individuals as an individual and as a community, town, state, and nation. Absolutely. And lastly, Moya Bailey, how fulfilled do you feel with putting this out there? knowing that this is 
emblematic of your life, your world, uh, whether it's where you live in Boston, Massachusetts, and globally, that this particular book, cover to cover, could have formulaic ways to make immeasurable changes? Oh, uh, that feels so big. I mean, I think as, <laughs> as a professor, you want to get the book out for, for your professional goals. But I really hope that people find it useful. I hope that people see it as a text that documents some important online history. And I hope that it uh, ex further explains misogynoir and perhaps inspires others to create the vocabulary and language that they need to describe uh, what they're experiencing in their own lives. And lastly, have you sent each location a copy, the White House and Mar-a-Lago? <laughs> I have not, but I will talk to my publishers about that and get yes. on that. <laughs> I think that's a must because, you know, the Biden administration is very open-eyed um, mm -hmm. and I think on the right path. Obviously, they have a full plate um, uphill battle because people like Mitch McConnell. Yes, friend I knew that's everyone. who it was. I knew oh, that's yes, who you were going to say. Yes. Well, we talking about. <laughs> um, how could they not want to look into January 6th is beside me. Uh, but, uh, you know, open eyes are our start. And hopefully um, this this piece of brilliant work that you've put out in the world um, will open people's eyes and realize that, you know, for all people, we all want to be loved and treated with respect and dignity. And that's not a, a big thing to ask for. This is a basic human right. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Yeah, I thought you'd like Moya Bailey. She's just tremendous. And I think it, it's a great topic, very fascinating topic. Um, and that's why I wanted to bring to you this conversation here on Insight. My name is Mark Farrell. The show is Insight. Thanks so much for your time. And, you know, with post-COVID, uh, we're all trying to do a lot of different things. Of course, living is one of them. And another top thing we're trying to do is lose weight. And diets, man, they just run the gamut. I mean, of course, when you are on social media, you are just flooded with ideas on how to lose weight, exercise, no shortage of machines, techniques, uh, you name it. But of course, weight loss comes down to changing the way you eat, what you put in your mouth. It's not just less of it, but it's what you put in there. So I know a few people who are on, you know, I hate to call them fad diets, but they're essentially fad diets. F-A-D, fad diets. And sometimes when I get excited, I talk too fast. So my apology. And I think these are effective for some people. They're effective if you go into this fad diet. Fad diets that I'm talking about that have you eat like radically different food, their food only, and maybe like a snack or two of, you know, the food you would normally have. But typically, a lot of the people that I know that are losing weight like fast and a lot of weight are choosing to go with companies that you only eat their products. So if you want to lose weight, go for it. But I just want people to be aware of that I think they can be really, really set up for disappointment and weight gain because it's hard to sustain weight loss when a diet is unrealistic. When you're eating food that you have to buy from them, which most of the time is not inexpensive, it's not realistic in terms of planning um, and in eating this way for the next six months, a year, for the rest of your life. I mean, it's, yes, of course, you have cheap meals and um, you can certainly 
dieting and anyone who wants to eat a decent diet has to plan ahead. Because like on a road trip, you can't survive on food that is sold at the gas station or at places where the pictures of the food are on the menus. Mama always said don't eat a, at a restaurant where the pictures are on the menus. Um, you know, you have to plan accordingly. Bring some decent snacks, pack bags, coolers, you name it. Or just make healthy decisions. But again, it's harder on the road. So the same thing applies to weight loss in terms of having a diet where you're eating strictly like 90% of the food that you have to purchase from them. Hey, it's not about the money. If you can afford it, then that's great. But I don't want someone to be set up for just an unrealistic goal because once they get off that or cease buying that food, then they have to figure out, oh, okay, well, what am I supposed to eat now? And then they go back to their normal ways, maybe a little bit less of the caloric intake from their previous intake uh, pre-diet, but then they're kind of at a loss. So, you know, I would say seek the insight of a dietitian, read up on it, research, but just be careful about having a diet strictly consisting of a company's food because from everyone that I've seen that has been on such a diet and resume their way of eating pre their company's food diet gained weight back. Maybe not all of it, but the majority of it. And one or two people actually gained more weight because they were just confused about what they should intake. Anyway, I hope that helps because, you know, we all want to stay fit and healthy. If you, if you look good, you feel good. If you feel good, you look good. And that's what it's all about. Whatever I just said, I'm not sure what I said. <laughs> Gary Knowles next. Hey, my name is Mark Farrell. Enjoy this gorgeous day. Hopefully it's nice wherever you are. And if it's not, you be the ray of sunshine. Keep smiling. Keep living. Keep laughing. Insight with Mark Farrell. Check out this and all Insight shows on the Insight page at prn.fm. prn.fm. Have Mark speak at your company, your kid's school or college. Mark speaks on critical topics that affect kids and adults everywhere, from anti-bullying, mental health, drugs and alcohol, to overcoming adversity. Visit MarkFarrellMotivation.com for more info. Insight, Thursday mornings at 11 on the Progressive Radio Network. Network.